Hey, what's up, CFL fans? Welcome back to Third Down Gamble, the CFL betting podcast. I am your host, Kyle McMahon, here to guide you through week 20 of the CFL schedule, the penultimate week of the season. We know who the six playoff teams are going to be, but there's still some seeding issues to sort out in the Western Division as we close in on the playoffs. Before we dive into a review of all the recent action and a look ahead to this week's games, I'll remind you once again that you can follow me on Twitter at KDrive88, K-D-R-I-V-E-8-8, for show updates, any thoughts I don't end up covering here, and probably a gripe or two over coaching in any football game, be it CFL, NFL, or the NCAA. Firstlinepicks.com is the website address, and the entire show archive is readily available there. All right, let's start by going over what was really the only game likely to have any serious playoff implications, Winnipeg's visit to Calgary on Saturday evening. This game certainly started with a bang in the first half, both teams combining for 46 points as the Bombers took advantage of a huge second quarter to build the 27-19 lead at the break. You couldn't have asked for two more diametrically opposed offenses, the Stampeders using the long ball to attack the Winnipeg defense. And with five pass plays for over 20 yards just in the first half, hard to argue with that strategy. One pick from Bo Levi Mitchell on his own side of the field, though, and the Bombers were able to convert that into seven points. And they did that right on the heels of a scoop and score after anti Milanovic leader getting the start at running back for Calgary coughed up the ball. As unstoppable as Calgary was through the air, Winnipeg was just as good along the ground, grading out 9 for 12 with 5 of those rushes going for 10 plus yards. Even when teams know the Bombers are going to run the ball, they're very difficult to stop, whether it's Andrew Harris or Chris Streveler doing the running. But in the second half, that complete lack of a credible passing game eventually caught up with them and the offense could only muster a pair of field goals in the final two quarters, as bad second half production continues to be a problem in Winnipeg. Overall, though, I thought Chris Strevler did play a pretty good game, and Winnipeg was ultimately let down by their defense and their coaching staff more than anything else. Two-point converts, I'll say it again, it makes very little sense strategically to kick single points after touchdowns in situations where the one point doesn't specifically help you, especially with the style of offense that Winnipeg runs. This team is built to pick up yardage in five-yard increments. They have a quarterback who regularly sneaks the ball for three yards at you know, they have a running back who's the, the best in the league at gaining yards after contact, who we constantly see drag tacklers for an extra three or four yards on runs that looked like they were going to get stuffed. It's almost inconceivable to me that Winnipeg wouldn't be converting two-point attempts at, at greater than a 50% clip if, if they simply made it their, their default strategy after touchdowns. Contrast that to Calgary, who successfully went for two after their first three majors of the game. The only time they didn't attempt it was on their final touchdown, and it made perfect sense there to kick the single and give yourself a four-point lead. Meanwhile, you've got Mike O'Shea kicking the single to give himself an eight-point lead rather than try to make it a two-possession game late in the first half with all sorts of momentum. This stuff seems to get lost in the shuffle when these games get discussed later on, but there's a half-decent argument to be made that Calgary won this game on the strength of their coaching staff having the wherewithal to go for two after all their early scores. Calgary outscored Winnipeg 7-3 on converts. They they did have one more touchdown, of course, but that, that's still a three-point swing even if you ignore the extra major. Imagine how different the final two offensive possessions might have been approached for Winnipeg if they were only trailing by a field goal instead of four points. Hmm. 
But beyond the convert stuff, I was really disappointed with how Mike O'Shea and Paul Apolis seemed to throw the whole playbook in the garbage with two and a half minutes left and start chucking downfield after running Calgary over at the line of scrimmage for the first 57 minutes. The Bombers ran by design 22 times in this football game, and they picked up no less than five yards on 15 of those plays. You know, this is another, let's call it a nuance of Canadian football that doesn't tend to get talked about as often as it probably should, but in a one-score game, you, you basically can run your regular offense until you're inside the final minute. The clock stops to spot the ball on any play inside the three-minute warning, even if you didn't pick up a first down. You know, if you're running a no-huddle offense, you can comfortably run 10 plays in two minutes without stopping the clock on a single one of them. Chris Strevler had completed a grand total of three passes for more than nine yards when the three-minute warning hit, uh, you know, one of them coming on a, a second-and-inches surprise play. Yeah, if you're Paul Apley sending in the plays, you know, what makes you think you're suddenly going to change uh, change everything up in the last two minutes, you know, especially with your number one receiver, Darvin Adams, not dressed, you know? You're taking your best playmaker, your MVP running back, completely out of the equation at the most crucial point in the game, and, and you really didn't have to with over two minutes still showing on the clock. I guess the final mental error that needs to be pointed out was Lucky Whitehead inexplicably deciding to run Rene Paredes' missed field goal out of the end zone with 45 seconds left in a game. Now, you're down four, so conceding the single point means absolutely nothing in that situation, and Instead of scrimmaging at the 35 with 45 seconds on the clock, Whitehead burned off 7 or 8 seconds on a run back where he got nailed at the 22. You know, I don't know, it makes makes sense to run back a missed field goal almost every time, I would say, and, and you know, and maybe in this case you do get lucky and bust a big one against a stamp special teams unit that has given up several this season, but that's one of the rare instances where I, I think you'd expect the coach to tell the return guy to take a knee and save the time on the clock. I guess that'll conclude my rant on the Blue Bombers coaching staff for the moment. These teams meet again in Winnipeg on Friday night, so we'll discuss them both again in a little while. I'll touch briefly here on the other three games from that last week, uh, none of which proved to be of any great importance beyond the Riders. Taking care of business against Danny O'Brien and the BC Lions to, you know, all but completely secure themselves a, a home field playoff game and and keep themselves in the running for top spot in the division. I'll, I'll say this though, I was reasonably impressed with the level of effort BC brought to the table. No Mike Riley, you know, eliminated from the playoffs the week before and heading towards a late season bye week. This was clearly a spot where a half-hearted effort wouldn't have been a big surprise, but they came to play. I wasn't overly impressed with the riders here. The, for, you know, for this to end up being a one-score ball game at the final whistle on a night where Lions backup quarterbacks Danny O'Brien and Grant Kramer, who entered the game briefly in the second half before unfortunately getting injured, were sacked six times and fumbled the ball away on two of those. You'd expect a more convincing victory. From basically the opening snap, the Riders stacked up the box to shut down John White in the BC running game and dared O'Brien to beat them with his arm. And on passing downs, the blitz just teed off and the Lions offensive line had no answers in a game that looked uh, more reminiscent of the first half of the season for the home team. The Riders did narrowly cover the 7.5 that this game closed at and easily covered the minus 3 that it had opened at, which might have been the worst line we've seen all season. Yeah, but they'll need to be a little sharper going forward if they're going to win their final two games and give themselves a chance at first place in the division. 
Ottawa Hamilton, intriguing for the fact that I don't think I've ever seen a more one-sided half that was tied at nine apiece uh, late in the second quarter. This was Will Arndt's second start for Ottawa. He was not able to generate much of anything in what might have been Ottawa's poorest offensive showing to date. First pass of the game went for 27 yards, and that was just about all she wrote as the Red Blacks finished this game without a touchdown and just a single trip inside the Hamilton 30-yard line which I think was the result of a turnover, I can't remember for certain, doesn't matter. Anyway you slice it, the 2019 edition of the Red Blacks will be going down as one of the worst offenses of all time, and it's hard not to feel bad for Coach Rick Campbell uh, for the hand he was dealt by his general manager this season. Toronto-Montreal, another game that was closer than we probably expected, though I'm not going to read a whole lot into it. The Alouettes were rotating starters in and out of the game throughout and didn't seem to be fully engaged until the fourth quarter, which isn't exactly out of the ordinary for them this season, but the only thing the Owls really needed to concern themselves with on Friday night was not getting anyone injured, and they seem to have managed that, at least in, in terms of major issues. So uh, on to week 20, we will march. Um, I guess we will start with the two Eastern games, one of which is probably worth tuning into on Saturday afternoon, but neither will have an impact in the standings. Hamilton heading into Montreal to kick off a Saturday triple header, and they've been made minus two and a half favorites with an over-under total of 53 and a half. So two of the top teams in the CFL going at it for the first time since very early in the season, and it's kind of too bad that the Eastern Division standings ended up spread out to the point that the last month of the season was essentially inconsequential, because this probably would have been a great tilt if anything was actually at stake. I've got to assume, especially with Montreal already starting to manage reps for key starters last week, that we're going to see more of a rotation from them again rather than riding the starters for the full 60 minutes. I, I think more so than the personnel on the field, though, the main concern of these coaches is going to be not tipping their hand to each other in advance of a probable meeting in the Eastern Final. I'm anticipating very vanilla play calling and scheming on offense. Uh, simply put, there's no reason to try anything unique or unexpected on offense in this game if you might want to do it later on in a higher leverage situation. The biggest consideration, of course, is not getting Vernon Adams or Dane Evans injured. Uh, as best I can tell, both guys are going to be playing, and probably the full game, unless there's a reason to pull them out of there. But there's certainly things you can do to mitigate the injury risk, and that in particular is what has me attracted to the under on that 53.5 point total, as far as bets are concerned. It's hard to touch a spread number when it's unknown, and probably won't ever be known exactly how many reps each team's starters are going to see or how truly committed either coach is to coming away with the victory. Both Orlando Steinauer and Kahari Jones are going to come out with the usual platitudes about playing every snap to win the game and whatnot, blah blah blah, and I'm, I'm sure they expect 100% effort levels out of the 12 guys on the field on any particular play, but if it comes down to needing to play the ace up your sleeve in terms of a certain scheme or set of plays to nudge your team over the finish line with a win here, uh, you know, as I said, I think that's probably where we see some discretion from the coaching staffs. Um, but you look at the point total, and it's fairly high based on the general trend we've seen this season across the league. Both offenses are more than capable of creating explosive plays and sustaining drives, but there's a few reasons why I don't foresee an explosion of offense on Saturday. The expectations in terms of play calls would be the first reason here. If you're looking to keep your quarterback healthy and on his feet, you're going to want to focus on the run game primarily. 
William Stanback and Jeremiah Johnson split reps last week for Montreal. Probably the same deal this week. Stanback was held out of the Winnipeg game two weeks ago, more in the name of load management and playing it safe than any real injury issues as far as I could tell. Terrell Sutton, the former Alouette, who looks to have cemented himself as the Tiger Cats' sixth or seventh starting running back of the season, whatever number we're up to now, looks like he's finding his groove back there, so he's probably going to see the ball often, and all of these guys are robust enough to take the hits that come with a heavy workload. So we probably see a significant amount of the run game, which is going to limit explosiveness. The passing game is still going to be a big part of both offenses. It's impossible for it not to be in the CFL. But again, you can certainly drop your offense with a mind to minimizing the injury exposure to the guy chucking the ball. Quick hits, hitches, screens. All of these plays get the ball out of their, uh, you know, out of the quarterback's hand quickly before the pressure has a chance to arrive. The one thing that's going to get your quarterback killed is calling a whole bunch of deep patterns that require him to stand in the pocket for four seconds and potentially take a hit to make a play, and I just can't imagine we see very much of that. So I definitely expect much more of a dink-and-dunk approach than we're used to out of both these offenses, and while that can still effectively move the ball, it greatly reduces the chances of quick-strike scoring and chews up more game clock, which is naturally an advantage if you're on the under. From a defensive perspective, I would expect more guys in coverage in this situation and fewer blitz packages. Again, the reason is pretty clear. You want your own quarterback to come out of this game in one piece, and if you're dialing up six or seven man blitzes against the other team, they're going to do the same thing to you. Um, it's kind of one of the unwritten rules in the preseason that neither coach is going to send the house at the other guy's quarterback, and I think we probably see that unofficial code adhered to in this situation as well. Blitzing tends to lead to more boomer bust type of drives for a defense and then an absence of the blitz steers you more into the bend but don't break direction, which again will reduce the likelihood of getting burned by a 50-yard pass play. Not seeing any movement whatsoever on the total here, I don't expect that changes a whole lot, but I'm on the under right now. Maybe it ticks up to 54 by kickoff for no other reason than people wanting to give themselves something to cheer for in this game, and as we all know, the majority of fans are going to cheer for points over defense. The 2.5 number is shading slightly towards Hamilton. Wouldn't surprise me to see it touch 3, but in all honesty, you're probably throwing a dart when it comes to this line. Hamilton is the better team. I'd side with them if forced to take a position, but at, at a minimum, I think we'd need to see the game day depth charts before trying to assign any actual value to one side or the other here. The other all-Eastern showdown is, of course, between two teams that didn't quite have the seasons that they envisioned, they being the Red Blacks and the Argonauts, who will meet up in Toronto for the second time in three weeks. Argos were five-point favorites early on. That number has been pushed out to five and a half or six in some places. Total still holding firm at 52 and a hook. I'm not going to lie. I myself will probably be watching the big Saturday afternoon clash in the college ranks between LSU and Auburn a little more intently than I'll be watching this reprise of the toilet bowl, but I am genuinely interested to see how many people make their way to the stadium in Toronto for this one. That has... The potential, methinks, to be a bit of an ugly scene with a pair of 3-13 and 13 teams on the field, but you know, hopefully Toronto's got a promotion or something to draw some people in. Uh, no word yet on whether or not Will Arndt is officially getting another start here for the Red Blacks, but uh, at this point it's hard to imagine any scenario where you'd feel comfortable betting on that offense. 
They did manage to score a pair of touchdowns against the Argos two weeks ago, which would qualify as an offensive explosion, and unfortunately I'm not even being sarcastic here. Uh, that was the first time since the second week of July that the Red Blacks offense found the end zone twice in the same game. They did have one multi-touchdown game in between, but that was from that game in August where Devontae Dedman ran back two kicks. Toronto was back to slinging the ball around in the second half against Montreal last week after a slow first half, and McLeod Bethel-Thompson, for all his shortcomings as far as making decisions with the football under pressure, can get his team into the end zone. Um, so if I was going to take a side here, I think Toronto is really the only option. Um, We've been kind of waiting for a good two months now for Ottawa to go out there and resemble a professional football team. Uh, as low as my expectations were for this team coming in, the team we've seen since mid-August has far exceeded the futility that anyone could have imagined. Um, this franchise played a reasonably close Grey Cup game 11 months ago, and now they're nearly a touchdown dog against a 3-13 and team. Hard to believe it's gone this poorly. If you're looking to get action down on the total here, I, I think the under is probably your your best direction. Ottawa's defense did come to play against Hamilton, you know, at least in terms of effort, and even though they still gave up over 30 points, they limited the Ticats to just 12 in the first half before running out of gas later on when the offense couldn't stay on the field for more than two snaps at a time. The Argonauts actually fared reasonably well against the Alouettes on the defensive side of the ball themselves. I can't say we really saw the best that Vernon Adams has to offer for three quarters of that game, but regardless, facing the Red Blacks offense will be a big step down in terms of quality, and if Toronto shows up with the same defensive effort they displayed last week, Ottawa isn't likely to eclipse 20 points. Of note, it sounds quite likely that backup Dakota Prucrop and the young Canadian quarterback Michael O'Connor out of UBC are going to take reps in this game for Toronto, perhaps a quarter each based on the chatter uh, coming out of there. If nothing else, it'll be nice to get a look at both of them. What that means from a betting perspective is that um, well, I, I like the under just that much more, and if the plan is for Bethel Thompson to play the first half and then uh, then give way to the, the young bucks, then... Um, you know, that isn't something that's been confirmed, but it has been speculated upon. Um, the first half spread here, which has the Argos laying just two and a half points, is potentially quite attractive, uh, more so than the game spread, I would say. So that's something to keep an eye on. Okay, um, we probably spent even more time uh, talking about that game than I expected to, but... Uh, Let's head back west now and we'll have a look at Saskatchewan and Edmonton before we circle back to the Bombers and Stampeders. The Eskimos are coming off a bye week and the biggest news to come out of this week is that starting quarterback Trevor Harris has been removed from the six-game injured list and will be in uniform on Saturday night. As the Eskimos try to ensure themselves at least a 500 season while the stakes are somewhat higher for the visiting riders who still have a chance to finish atop the Western Division. This line opened with the Riders as slight minus one favorites. That number quickly moved out to minus two and a half before the Harris news broke, and it has since returned more or less to the open, with Saskatchewan currently favored by anywhere from one to two points, depending on where you do your line shopping. Despite not meaning anything in the standings, this game is still pretty important for Edmonton from an optics perspective, in my opinion. For the second year in a row, the second half of the season has been a disaster, and, and that's compounded this year by the fact that they've basically put up a goose egg against the five teams with a pulse this year. 
one and eight combined against Calgary, Winnipeg, Hamilton, and Montreal, with that lone win coming in the season opener against an Alouettes team who played Antonio Pipkin for three quarters and mounted a huge fourth quarter comeback that came up just short after Vernon Adams came in. I won't say Jason Moss is coaching for his job at this point because I don't think many people expected him to survive last season's debacle and lo and behold he did and this organization historically has had uh, an extreme reluctance to remove bad head coaches over the last 15 years but going outright winless against the non-BC Western opponents is a horrible look that I don't think the franchise or the coach wants to wear. That said, I, I still don't think they've rushed Trevor Harris back for this game. Um, you know, it, it means nothing in the standings. And if he wasn't 100%, uh, you know, or as close to 100% as he's going to get, um, I don't think they would have activated him. So I'm going to operate under the belief that he'll be, be under center and it'll be business as usual as far as the game plan goes. Coach Moss stated yesterday that, um, you know, as soon as Harris was ready to get back in there, it would be go time, no managing of reps or anything like that. And um, there's no indication that he's had any setbacks in, in practice this week. So um, I fully expect him to see uh, see every rep on Saturday night. This is the first time these teams have played each other this season, oddly enough. Um, and obviously... Obviously, Craig Dickinson and Jason Moss have never gone up against one another as head coaches, so a little bit of uncertainty in that regard. Saskatchewan blitzed BC heavily last week, and they loaded up the box to keep John White stuck in neutral. They won't be able to get away with that in this game. Um, The Eskimos have a significantly better offensive line than the Lions, and a quarterback that can exploit the gaps in coverage created by extra personnel at the line of scrimmage, assuming, of course, that it is Harris. If Logan Kilgore was going to be in there, it might be a different story. Um, but Harris's biggest strength has been neutralizing blitzes with how quickly he gets the ball away. Uh, Craig Dickinson's not stupid, though. The Saskatchewan coaching staff knows full well that they'll be dealing with a different animal this week compared to last. I still expect the Riders to try and bring a lot of pressure off the edge. That's been their MO this season. And this could be an early test for Shaq Cooper, who will be getting the start at running back again this week for the Eskimos, because it's crucial that your running back is able to pick up those outside blitzers and keep his quarterback from getting killed. We know for sure that Edmonton themselves will be doing plenty of blitzing on the defensive side. Uh, This is something they've seldom deviated uh, deviated away from throughout the year. Facing a mobile quarterback in Cody Fajardo is going to present some unique challenges, though. You look back at the times this defense has gone up against guys who can run this season, and uh, the sample size isn't large, but the results aren't particularly encouraging. I don't think we can really call Mike Riley a mobile quarterback at this point in his career, but Vernon Adams and Chris Strebler definitely are, and in approximately nine quarters against those two this season, the Edmonton defense has given up 71 points, which is significantly worse than their seasonal average. In the case of Strebler, I think they were simply slow to adapt and probably respected his ability to pass the ball in wet conditions far more than they needed to, but Fajardo and the Riders receiving core are a clear step up in class from Winnipeg under Strebler, and if the Eskimos maintain a blitz-heavy approach, it's going to put a lot of strain on a secondary that has faded somewhat as the season has gone on and they've faced better competition. But I still think that ultimately the key here on offense for Saskatchewan, and you know we keep coming back to this, is the run game. Both Henry Burris and Matt Dunnigan have highlighted this on the TSN broadcast recently as well, but offensive coordinator Steve McAdoo has the tendency, for whatever reason, to periodically lose the script. 
you go back through the entire schedule and the common thread is that Saskatchewan has gotten themselves into trouble when they don't give William Powell the ball enough. The Eskimos' run defense was probably tops in the league for a good portion of the schedule, but they've been beaten up regularly in the second half. There's really no reason here, at least that I can see, why Saskatchewan can't attempt to replicate what Hamilton did along the ground against Edmonton in recent weeks, which was 29 for 38 in terms of rushing success rate with a whopping 11 explosive runs of 10 or more yards. We've seen Edmonton load up the defensive line even further in recent weeks, rotating seven or eight capable guys through, but the Riders are in a fairly similar position on the offensive line. This unit has performed very well this year, and suffering a significant number of early injuries necessitated depth guys being thrust into starting roles, and, and those guys have risen to the challenge. Now that Brendan Labatt and Philip Blake are back healthy, the Riders you know, have seven or eight guys that they can turn to and depend on on the offensive line, and that level of depth at a key position is a, a crucial advantage. This should be a good battle in the trenches on both sides of the ball, and this game may well come down to whichever team is able to better withstand their opponent's push along the line. Looking at the numbers here, this is another spot where I'm gravitating towards the under. If Saskatchewan is going to be successful moving the ball, it's going to be on the back of Powell running through the blitz or Fajardo escaping the pocket and running himself. If they come out chucking the ball on 70% of their first down snaps, I don't think it's going to work out particularly well. On the Edmonton side, the, the biggest knock on Harris in this offense in general has been extremely poor red zone efficiency. I'm certainly not sitting here in week 20 expecting that to suddenly change, but I do expect they'll be able to keep the time of possession close to even with drives that move the sticks even if they don't end up in the end zone. We're sitting at 47.5 at most shops right now, so you're probably going to sweat a little. You always will on a sub-50 CFL total. Um, but I think these two offenses keep it conservative enough that we see them both come in under 25. When it comes to the spread number, I had plus 3 targeted as the buy point for Edmonton. Doesn't look like we're getting there, and this is probably going to stay in that no-man's land right around 0 there's certainly a path for Edmonton to win this game. Things were trending down before Trevor Harris got hurt, but if he's able to step back in and execute it close to the level he was at before getting hurt, that's going to be a huge boost for an offense that wasn't getting much out of Kilgore. Saskatchewan's going out on the road for the third consecutive week. None of those have been long journeys, but it, you know it's still a, a factor, all that travel. They didn't practice at their regular facility all week due to the hockey game being played at Mosaic Stadium on Saturday night. And as I mentioned off the top, they really didn't look great offensively last week, barely winning the time of possession battle against a team that was completely dead in the water on offense themselves with backup quarterbacks in the game. So there's reasons to tread carefully here, though at the same time, Edmonton hasn't proven that they can beat any decent opponents all year and you know with fan disgust now reaching very significant levels in Edmonton it wouldn't surprise me if the crowd at Commonwealth Stadium on Saturday night is close to 50-50 in terms of fan allegiances with a great many Saskatchewan transplants who call Alberta home now and tend to come out in droves to support their team uh, especially when they're competitive. I guess my last little hesitation towards Saskatchewan right this minute is that if Calgary beats Winnipeg on Friday night, the Riders will require the Stamps to lose the season finale in BC, in addition to winning both of their remaining games in order to win the division. 
you wonder if they potentially relax a little if that happens, knowing the odds of the Stamps losing against the Danny O'Brien-led BC Lions team with a first-round bye on the line are pretty damn slim. But that game will take place 24 hours before Saskatchewan takes to the field, so the situation will be clear by Saturday. We'll slide right into that Calgary-Winnipeg game in question, which will kick off the week on Friday night. Just to review, a win for Calgary would leave them firmly in the driver's seat as far as first place is concerned, though a loss would temporarily see the Bombers jump back in front of the Stamps at 11-7 and and holding the season series tiebreaker, requiring Calgary to win or tie their season finale in BC in order to finish ahead of Winnipeg. There is still a chance that the Bombers could secure a home field playoff game. That would obviously require a win here and a Stampede or loss in BC next week, and it would set up a Western semi-final matchup between these two teams. There's also a really remote chance that Winnipeg could actually host the Riders in a semi-final, but that would require a three-way tie to occur at 11-7, which would leave Calgary, Winnipeg, Saskatchewan in that order in the standings. Highly unlikely that that occurs, but never say never in the CFL. We speculated on whether or not Zach Caleros would see the field for Winnipeg after being picked up at the trade deadline a couple weeks back, and we needn't speculate any longer. Chris Strebler has been moved to the one-game injured list after getting banged up in the loss last week, and Caleros is indeed going to get the ball for his fourth different CFL franchise. From what I've heard coming out of Winnipeg, Caleros has looked pretty sharp in practice and feels reasonably comfortable running a... A fairly veteran-laden offense, if you're a quarterback coming into what is basically your first game of the year in late October, the two things you probably want the most are a strong offensive line and a dependable run game. Winnipeg has both of those things, and after the day they had running the ball against Calgary last week, it would be almost insane not to hand the ball to Andrew Harris on as many plays as he possibly can. But what can we expect out of the passing game? Well, in terms of pass accuracy and decision-making, Caleros has to be considered an upgrade on Strevler, at least at this exact moment. Where the big concern lies is that he doesn't have anywhere near the mobility, and for a guy who's probably one big hit away from retirement at this point, unfortunate as that sounds, you really wonder about his ability to absorb any punishment here. The Stampeders have moved defensive lineman Cordero Law to the one-game injured list, and uh, they really can't catch a break here injury-wise with quite literally an entire front seven, uh, and not a, even a bad-looking one at that, out injured. Not every single one of those guys is a starter, but several are. So their ability to create blitz pressure is, is on the limited side right now, but obviously it only takes one hit, and for Caleros's sake, hopefully that can be avoided. Now the good thing, as mentioned, is that Winnipeg does have a strong line. Andrew Harris is a very capable blocker, and you've got to think Paul Lapolis and Mike O'Shea are going to do what they can to beef up the protection. Now when you look at Caleros and compare him to Matt Nichols, a lot of the same traits are evident, so there's definitely some hope that this offense can at least operate in a similar manner to the first half of the season where they were... You know, very successful for the most part, uh, you know, leaning on the run mainly, but knowing they did have a guy back there who could complete passes of more than 10 yards with some regularity. Darvin Adams uh, mentioned he didn't play last week. Um, he's had a pretty forgettable year anyway, but he is expected to be back in the lineup, and Winnipeg really needs somebody in this receiving core that opposing defenses have to worry about. 
Back in training camp in the early season, it sure looked like Lucky Whitehead was going to be that guy, but you know he petered out pretty quickly. Kenny Lawler, uh, he's an, he's a rookie. He's been pretty effective in spurts. Uh, maybe a better quarterback can get him going, but the, the overall prognosis for this group of receivers isn't great, and, and Caleros is going to have to be on point in order to make the Calgary defense really respect the passing game and, and not just key in on shutting down Harris. Which is easier said than done, but as we saw last week, that you know the field's 110 yards long, and you can you can afford to give up runs in eight and ten yard chunks if there's no passing game to speak of, because eventually you're going to stop one of them, and you know probably get yourself off the field. Other side of the ball, uh, it's probably going to get lost in the Caleros news, but. Chandler Fenner, not going to be available for Winnipeg. He got nicked up last week. I would have to assume fairly late since he was still out there in the fourth quarter. That's a big loss to a Winnipeg secondary that has had all sorts of problems in the second half of the season to begin with. Bo Levi Mitchell is dealing fire right now, and this could be ugly again if Winnipeg can't figure out a way to bring effective pressure. Calgary's offensive line has just done a masterful job in pass protection the last two months, both in terms of execution and scheming. If there's one criticism to be had, their run blocking has been on the underwhelming side, but at the same time, Calgary has basically been Hamilton West this season in terms of running back injuries, with arguably their top three guys at that position on the shelf for the bulk of the season. Actually, probably not even arguably. Definitely their top three guys on the shelf. Um, Anti Milanovic leader, you know, he looked all right last game. Costly fumble notwithstanding, but, you know, he's not a guy you're going to be overly worried about breaking a game open either. From my vantage point, the only real hope the Bombers have of slowing down this Calgary offense enough to give their own offense a chance at one-upping them is Willie Jefferson and the rest of that defensive line giving everything they have to offer here. I've said this for weeks, this defense has basically lived on, lived and died on the shoulders of, of Jefferson getting into the backfield and disrupting, and he hasn't done enough of that over the last five weeks. Now, that's not all on Willie. It's, it's a no-brainer that you're going to be double-teaming him along the line on the majority of plays, but that leaves Jackson, Jeffcoat, and Drake Nevis in a lot of one-on-one situations, and you know those guys are quality players that need to step their game up and win their matchups against a Stamps offensive line that has stabilized very nicely in the second half of the season after a fair bit of shuffling back in June and July. This secondary isn't covering Reggie Bagleton and Eric Rogers, to put it bluntly, and if, if I'm Richie Hall, I'm, I'm going for broke here and sending the house every chance I get, because that's the only realistic way that Bo Levi Mitchell is going to get knocked out of rhythm. The only defenses to really have any consistent success against him in recent years were the ultra-aggressive Chris Jones defenses in Edmonton and Saskatchewan, and I'd be looking to take a page out of that book if I'm Winnipeg here. This line opened up with Calgary as a one-point favorite. Uh, this has now worked its way up to a juiced minus two and a half in most spots, with the odd minus three starting to pop up. I think the lean has to be to the proven commodity at this point, which is, of course, Calgary. Um, Winnipeg has shown themselves to be a tough out at investors group field. Uh, Hamilton's the only team to come in there and win this season, but man, it's hard to hitch your wagon to Zach Caleros in this spot. Stylistically, he opens up options in the passing game that were largely unavailable with Strevler driving the bus, but is you know is a modest upgrade in that department going to be enough after you account for the non-existent rushing threat? I'm just not convinced that it is. If there was ever going to be that dig deep and circle the wagons moment for Winnipeg, this is it. And I do think Winnipeg probably throws everything but the kitchen sink at Calgary to try to win this game, but... 
you know, they more or less did that last week and they still came up short despite a, a defensive score, which is essentially found money. I think this is probably another game decided by a single score, but the Stamps, man, they're they're the zombie in the horror movie that you just can't kill, and I I don't think you can confidently bet against Bo Levi Mitchell uh, laying only a field goal or less in a must-win game. All right, I think we've covered uh, just about everything here. Last order of business, where are we backing up our Brinks truck this week? Hmm... Nothing I'm in love with. No Saskatchewan minus three free roll that was gifted to us last week. I hate to do it, but let's go back to the toilet bowl part two. Toronto got it done for us two weeks ago. We'll trust them again, but I know you don't want to be stuck watching the entire game. So we'll hit Toronto minus two and a half in the first half. Not every single book out there has first half lines available before game day. I'd expect the ones that wait till game day probably open it at minus three. I'd still play it at that number. Three and a half would be a different story. Uh, but hopefully you get that minus two and a half down and give yourself some extra Saturday night beer money when McLeod Bethel Thompson uh, heroically leads uh, Toronto to a, a lead of a field goal or more after the first half. That'll do it here for another edition of Third Down Gamble. Thanks as always for listening. Once again, follow along on Twitter at KDrive88 or online at firstlinepicks.com and we will see you next time.